The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. We're going to be looking, beginning this morning, looking at the book of James, four verses. Listen to what James writes. This is, he's writing to the church in Jerusalem the people who were part of the church in Jerusalem, the first church that existed, and uh, now they've scattered because of persecution. And he writes to them, James, a bondservant of God. Now remember, this is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. They had the same mother. And so it looks like he would say, the brother of Jesus, but instead he says, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, That is, they're scattered. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, whenever you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I'm going to read a little further, because this entire section down to verse 18 is about this this truth we're looking at this morning. He says in verse 5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, that is, in your trials... If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You know what I love about that phrase? It's a a title of God. He is the God who gives to all generously without reproach. You know what reproach is? Reproach is what your parents would do to you when you asked for something they didn't want to give you. Why are you always asking for something? But God's not like that. He gives to all generously and without reproach. But, he says, when you ask, you must ask without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded or two-souled, wanting this and wanting that. I want to, but I don't want to. You know, you've heard that before. Unstable in all his ways, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flower and grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved... He will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God never tempts people to sin, but he does test us. He does put us through trials. But he says, don't blame God when you're being tempted in the midst of trials to sin. He says, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when the lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That is a spiritual death, being cutting yourself off from God. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. I want to show you what we're going to look at in James. Let me, if I could get you to turn to Acts chapter 8 for just a moment. I want you to think about the context they're in or, or see what kind of context they're in. 
James is the one who pastored the church in Jerusalem. It was born on the day of Pentecost. The church didn't exist in the Old Testament, by the way. The church is something that Jesus said, I will build. And it's a called out people from all the nations and people groups. And in Acts chapter 8, we have an account of what happened in Jerusalem and why they were scattered. Now, this is in the the beginning of chapter 8. He's talking about the murder of Stephen, who was testifying to the gospel. And the Jews put him to death. And he says, and on that day, great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. These were all Jewish people who believed in Christ on the day of Pentecost. Some of them were Hellenistic Jews. That is, they were from other parts of the world, the Roman Empire. And they had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And the spirit was poured out. And they came to faith in Christ. And he says, a great persecution began against this church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. We've heard of persecution, but we've never seen someone killed, murdered because of the testimony of Jesus. But that's exactly what happens to Stephen. But Saul ravaging the church. This is the pre-salvation Saul before he became Paul. He began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Now I want you to turn over to 11, chapter 11, verse 19. This carries on from this, this thing that happened that the believers in the church in Jerusalem, who are all Jewish people who had come to faith in Christ, they were scattered. And so he tells us in chapter 11, verse 19, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. These are all cities of the Roman Empire where Gentiles lived, not Jews. They were there speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. These are Jewish Christians who've been scattered, and they're only telling other Jews about the coming of the Messiah in Jesus Christ. He said, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, those are two cities, Gentile cities in northern Africa, and one of them is an island. And so these are men who had been living among the Gentiles, even though they were Jewish. And so what happened was, it says, they came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, that is not just the Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now we just take this all for granted because uh, we have lived in a time when the gospel is going out to every people group on the face of the earth. But this was a time when in the very first days and months and years of the church, those who had believed on Christ and were part of the church only preached the gospel to other Jews. But now they're beginning to preach the gospel to these Gentiles. And it says in verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. A lot of these Gentiles turned to the Lord. Now, probably most of us here are Gentiles. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're, if you're Jewish, but um, most of us are Gentiles. But the gospel got to us. And it began by the scattering of these people from the church in Jerusalem. And James, who was the pastor of that church, the leader of that church, he was one of the pastors, and he was the main spokesman for the church. He is writing this letter to these people who have scattered out throughout the Roman Empire. James is a difficult book, but it's not difficult because it's hard to understand. It's very easy to understand. 
The reason it's difficult is it gets, he gets in your face. He really does. He points his finger and he looks into my heart and he sees the bottomless pit of evil in my heart. Pride and prejudice and self-righteousness and hypocrisy and deceit. And he even targets my cold, deliberate sins of the spirit and delivers his message with lethal accuracy. This is the word of God, and the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces the dividing of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and it lays us bare before the one to whom we must give an account, that is God himself. What happens when you come to the Bible, the reason people get so uncomfortable with it is it, it just gives you a true picture of your heart. Howard Hendricks said this about the book of James. He said, James doesn't strafe the deck. He drops the bomb right down the funnel. That's exactly how it is. He just hits you right in your heart. It's written by a a pastor who's pastoring a church, and the flock has been scattered because of persecution and hard times. They're going through trials. A lot of people think, they assume, that Christians believe that they, they will have no trouble in their life. What I could do is have everybody who's had some trouble in your life in the past year as you've been following Christ to stand, we'd see that all of us fit into that category. And the result is we're tempted to allow circumstances to shape our lives. And that's what was going on with this group. It's an excuse for the idols of the heart from which we seek to draw life because we're looking for solutions to our problems. And so this is like a surgeon's knife. He's cutting deep and cleansing the pockets of infection in our soul so that we can see the truth and understand the truth. He's about wholeness. James wants us to know what real faith is. He wants us to understand that faith will produce behavior. Belief will produce behavior. So he is calling on them to believe and trust God, even in the midst of their trials. So he describes himself here as James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But wait a minute, this is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. Why wouldn't he say that? Well, because he understands like the rest of us, he stands before God because of his faith in Jesus Christ the Messiah who's come into the world. And so he wants them to understand this. He's a bondservant. A bondservant. The primary focus of being a bondservant is obedience. If you're a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, you obey him. Even when you read the word of God and you hear his commandments about how we're supposed to forgive, how we're supposed to love, how we're supposed to live our lives, and some of it we bristle under. But we're bondservants of Jesus Christ. This is the foundation of spiritual authority. The reason he had authority, and he carried the day at the very first church council in Acts 15 at Jerusalem. It was him who dealt with the question and spoke very clearly. And like Jesus said, I do not do my father's, if I don't do my father's deeds, then don't believe me. In other words, my behavior is the testimony of my relationship with the Father. And James feels the same way. If I do not do my Father's deeds, don't believe me, Jesus said. He also said in John 17, if you desire to do the Father's will, you'll know that the words I speak are from him and not just from myself. A lot of times people say, I don't understand the Bible. Well, let me tell you, until you come to the place where your heart is regenerated, you're born again, and you start to desire to do the will of God, the Bible will be a total enigma to you. But when your heart is changed, 
and you desire to do the will of the Father, the word of God will come in power. It's total folly for us to ignore our own inner life while instructing and giving counsel to others. And James wasn't like that. James wasn't preaching to the the crowd and not living it himself. And it's like Paul said, take heed to yourself and to your teaching. Sometimes it's a whole lot easier to stand up here and talk to you about what you ought to do than for me to do it. That's why I want you to pray for me. (laughs) Because Paul says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Isn't that something how we're built that way because of the fall? That all of us have a much easier time seeing faults in others than in ourselves? Do you have that disease too? Yeah, it's, it's a common characteristic of a fallen person, the result of the fall, that we're able to see shortcomings in others easier than we can see it in ourselves. We have a blind spot. And so Jesus gave this, this illustration. He says, how in the world do you think you can get the speck out of your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye? Can you picture that? A log in your own eye? And you're trying to get the little splinter out of your brother's eye? And so Jesus said, first get the log out of your eye, and then you can see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the first issue that begins this pastoral letter is encouraging these people who are on the run. They're literally on the run. Think of that. And so these people that that James is writing to are going through great difficulties, trials. Some I hope you picked up in uh, Romans 5 when Steve read it this morning is Paul is giving God thanks for the trials. He was giving God thanks for his trials. Because he says trials works perseverance or endurance. And endurance hope. And hope, this hope, and that's what he says, this hope will not disappoint you. You've had the hopes that disappointed you, haven't you? Where you thought, you know, like somebody called you on the phone, they said, you just want a new Cadillac. All you got to do is send in the, the sales tax and we'll get the car to you right away. And you believe that, and then it, your hopes are dashed because you find out it was a lie. But this hope, the hope in God that he, that he brings as we suffer, as we go through difficult times, he says, if you endure, it will produce a hope that will not put you to shame. It won't shame you down because God is going to answer. Now, what I want to do is to show you four things in this text that describe the purposes of God in your trials. This is a hard pill to swallow sometimes because I don't want to hear that. I want to hear, what do I have to do to get out of this trial? Four steps to escaping trial. Five steps to avoiding trials. Wouldn't that be good? I could sell a book if I, if I knew the answer to that. But this is God's purposes in your trials. Why does God allow you to go through trials? And here, here, here's what they are. These four things. And it's, it's in your notes in the bulletin, if you have a bulletin. To reveal our faith, to refine our faith, to perfect our faith, bring us to maturity in the faith. And then finally, our responsibility is to endure. So notice what he says. First of all, in verse 2, God's first purpose is to reveal your faith. This is the hardest part about trials. Trials reveal the true nature of your faith. Is it strong, weak? Is it really there? He says, when you encounter various trials, and the word encounter means to fall among. You know that story about the the Good Samaritan and the guys on the road to Jerusalem 
and he falls among thieves. It meant that he was surrounded. He fell into their grasp. That's what he's saying. Whenever you encounter trials, whenever you fall into this situation, all of a sudden you, you realize you're in the midst of a very difficult trial. So it's when, not if. <laughs> you get that? When you fall into trials, not if you will fall into trials. Every believer, according to the New Testament, is going to suffer trials in their life. It's a part of the Christian life. And so we sometimes fall into trials. And the word he uses for trials, I remember this word real well. The Greek word is pyros. And I remember because I used a little mnemonic device when I was memorizing this word. You know what pyrex is? Some of you ladies know what pyrex is. And it can endure a lot of heat, can it? You put heat under it. Well, this word pyros means to fall into trials, to be tried, to have difficult circumstances that can be very unsettling whenever I fall into trials. This is really the most important uh, word in this context because he uses it four times in this first chapter. It had two distinct meanings. One meaning was trials, that is troubles that you go through, but the other was temptation to sin. He uses it both ways here, but he makes something clear. God never tempts you to sin, but he will allow you to go through trials. And you know what? He's not running for office. (laughs) He's telling us the truth that he works in our lives and he allows us to go through trials. So don't be surprised when you fall into trials. In verse 2, the meaning is made clear here. This trial is not a temptation to sin, but it's a difficult circumstances. And we feel surrounded at times. Like, how am I ever going to get out of this? How are we ever going to get through this? trial. Later on, he's going to talk about God, about us being tempted, but not by God, but by our own sin that dwells in us. But here he's talking about this context is about being surrounded by trials. And he says, it's the testing of your faith, and it must be endured. You ever heard of a stress test? Uh, John Taylor had to go through a stress test when he first went in the hospital. He's still there, by the way. I'm going to continue to pray for him. Um, But he had to do a stress test because he thought he had had a heart attack and it turned out to be pneumonia, but he had to do this stress test. And they're not testing your stress. That's not what a stress test is. It isn't. Uh, We're going to see if you really have stress. The stress test is to see the condition of your heart, the true condition of your heart when you you put it under stress. And this is, what, this is what trials are. They put your faith under the microscope, and you see what's there. It's kind of like an x-ray machine. You know, you, they take an x-ray, they come out and show you the picture. You say, see this right here? We have to do something about this. And you don't take it and rip it up and say, I don't want to know that. And so what, what James is doing is telling his people who are on the run that the trials you are going through are in God's control. And what he's doing is, he is testing your faith. Your faith is being tested. Your trust in Christ. Your faith in Christ. And he says they're variegated. He calls them variegated trials. It's the word that's used in the Old Testament. When they translate in Greek, they use the same word to describe Joseph's many 
color. You remember that from Sunday school when Joseph had this, this, his father gave this to him because his father loved him the most. And so he gave him this coat of many colors. It was quite extravagant. And that's the same word as used here. It's their variegated trials. In fact, the thing is, we could go around and take a little poll here this morning if we wanted to, and we could find out that we're in all kinds of different trials. And few of us are going through the exact same thing. But God is always allowing us. Now, this doesn't mean it never stops, but it means that we have it often, that we go through times in which our faith is tested, and we see the truth about our faith. You know, I think I have really strong faith until it's tested, and then I see the truth about it. It's not near as strong as I thought. And so he says this, this testing reveals the truth of your faith. And this is the hardest part about trials. It's the, part, it's the part that really hurts the most because you go into a trial and all of a sudden you notice how weak your faith is. So what is our responsibility as we're going through this? Well, notice what he says. Consider it all joy. Consider it all joy. That's so easy to say and so hard to do. I was, I was thinking this morning if uh, Renee Campbell was here. She's not here this morning, but she's going through a round of chemotherapy, and it's just so horrible. It's, she's having such a hard time. And uh, I was thinking, what if I said to her, well, first thing you need to do is count it all joy. That is the thing she's supposed to do. But I understand how hard that is. That's really difficult, isn't it? Think about what you're going through right now. I mean, the hard, the hard part of what you're going through right now, or have gone through very recently. And I say to you, count it all joy. What does that mean? It doesn't mean enjoy it. It doesn't mean um, pretend as though it's, it's easy, feel it all joy, or trials are joy. It's not saying that. It's saying count it. As you think about it, realize this is the hand of God to show me the truth about my faith and to refine my faith, as he's going to say. So we are to consider it all joy, but thoughtfully. Consider it. It means think about it in your mind. When you think about it, maybe it doesn't feel joyful, but in your mind say, be able to say to God, thank you, Father, for entrusting, for trusting me enough to put me through a trial, to allow me to have my faith tested so that I can see the truth about my faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and then the second uh, purpose, God's second purpose is found in verse 3, and it's to refine your faith, the testing of your faith. The word testing is the word that was used for refining gold and silver. Do you know how they did it? What they would do, they would take some ore, and they would put it over heat until it liquefied. The gold or the silver would liquefy, and then they would... They would screen out the impurities and so that they would just have pure gold or pure silver. You know how the refiner found out how pure it was as he was doing this? Because they had to repeat it over and over and over again. You know how he found out that it was getting more and more pure? He could see his reflection. And as he looked into that, more and more he could see a clear reflection of himself. That's what God is doing in our lives. As he's refining our faith, he's beginning to see his image in us. It's a wonderful thing that God has your heart. And so when you go through the testing of your faith, 
the refining of your faith, your faith becomes stronger, not weaker. And our responsibility is to remember that we are to know this. We're, we're to know that the testing of your faith is going to produce pure faith, faith that's real. Uh, sometimes we find ourselves stretched to the point where it's beyond our ability to trust God. And then we start yelling and screaming in the bedroom after we close the door. <laughs> you know, God, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? You, you do understand that God is for you, don't you? You understand, believer, that the Father won't allow any trial in your life that he's not able to use to do this work. Of first of all, showing you the truth about your faith and then showing you how it's being refined by this trial and actually refining it. And so our responsibility is to remember when we enter a trial, oh, wait a minute, God is in charge of this, isn't he? And he's doing something. He's, he is refining my faith, just like gold and silver. Because he says that faith is the most valuable thing that we have, our ability to trust God. It's the most valuable thing you have. It's above everything else. You don't get a degree for it. You don't get a certificate for it. But it's the most valuable thing that you have, is your ability to trust God. And then finally... In verse 4, you had the third purpose, and that is so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That you'd grow up in the faith. That you would come to maturity in trusting God. That's what it's for. Perfect is one of James' uh, favorite words. It doesn't mean absolute perfection. All you got to do is look around the room, and you can see the most mature believers among us. They're still not absolutely perfect like Jesus is perfect. But what it does mean is you'll be complete. God is able to produce through trials things in our life that bring us to a place of completeness. There's a word, a Hebrew word you've heard many times, shalom. It's a, they use it as a greeting now, but shalom means peace. And what shalom, the way to define the word is this. It means when things are the way they're supposed to be. When was the last time, think about this a second, when was the last time in your Christian walk that you felt like that you were, a so, you were related to God in such a way, you were relating to God in your daily walk, in your prayer life, and the way you lived your life, in a way that he was totally satisfied with my walk. I'm not talking about your standing. Your standing is perfect. When was the last time you felt really confident that God was at work in your life, that he was showing you things in your heart? God is at work in our hearts, and he's refining our faith. And he it wants us to come to real maturity. And this is what he's saying. So we would be lacking in nothing. That intensifies the idea. There's no loopholes. I can actually walk with Christ, so I'm, I'm related to him. You know, for example, every time you hear a commandment of Jesus, like, this is the one I know the best. Husbands, love your wife the way Christ loved the church. When was the last time you heard that and thought, what a privilege it is to love my wife. What a great privilege it is to love my wife, that I've been commanded to love her, and the Spirit of God empowers me to love her the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what he says. He says, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. And then he says to wives, and all the husbands think this is even tougher, 
He said to wives, wives, submit to your husbands. And the women all think probably they've got the harder assignment. But actually what it is, it's trust in God. It's not trust in your husband. It's not all of a sudden you think he's Superman. It's that you know that this is what God has commanded you to do, and therefore the Holy Spirit will empower you to do. That's being complete. That, that, is, that is coming to the place where the, the work of Christ in our hearts is real, and we can see the effects of it. And that's what he says that going through trials will do, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So I can be a grown-up Christian, a mature believer, so that I can see God working in and through me. And then he also says in this verse, but let endurance have its perfect result. This is our responsibility. It means to remain under the pressure. Don't bail out. Remain under the pressure. Continue to obey him. Continue to trust him, even in the midst of the trial. Continue to, what Peter says is, cast your anxieties on him. Humble yourself under his mighty hand, because he's in control, by casting your anxieties on him, because it matters to him about you. And so when I understand his commandment, and I see the great challenge that it is, I can consider it nothing but joy that he has given me this assignment, because he will empower me to do it. He'll empower me to love those. In fact, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, bless those who curse you. Can you imagine that? Somebody curses you, maybe in some setting where somebody's just pouring out invectives on you, and you say, well, the Lord bless you. (laughs) They'd probably carry you away in a wagon, huh? But you see, what he's saying is we have to endure under trial. We have to endure through this because we trust God. We know he's in control. It's so easy to say, I understand that. It's so easy to say what's hard is actually what's difficult. The challenge is, as I'm in the trial, and it looks bigger than life to me. Judy and I, uh, we'd never go to the movies. We went to the movies the other night to see Meg. You know what that is? It's that giant shark. Ridiculous. But it does, it, it did, as I, as I was watching this, I was thinking, man, we are small. We are so small. And you know, even though I don't believe there is a shark that big, there are trials in life that are so difficult that we just feel like throwing up our hands and throwing in the towel. But God says, remain. Remain under it. Keep trusting me. And he will do a great work in our life. If we will simply do that, if we'll simply let endurance have its perfect result, what is endurance's perfect result? You come to maturity. You come to maturity in the faith. You become to be a mature follower of Christ. This is the plan of God. Real simple. God's plan for the church is that we make disciples who make disciples. So that means that every single one of us should be engaged in making disciples. And all that means is influencing people to learn to follow Christ. He's called us to to do that. And what we want to see, what all of us want to see, I want to see it, you want to see it. We want to see people that we 
pour our lives into and to see them grow up and then to see them disciple others, right? Isn't that true? There's three people that agree with me. Uh, it's true. This is, this is what he is doing. And so trials are a part of the training. It's like uh, Pat Patterson's uh, cousin, Deloitte Taylor. He was at our home talking about his, their adventures in the Philippines. They started a school over there, so they moved over there after he retired, and they've had nothing but trouble. Automobile accidents, all kinds of trouble. And he said, well, he said, I, I've been a machinist my whole working life, and I know this, you can't use a tool that's not sharp. And so you have to sharpen your tools, and that's what God's doing to us. He's sharpening us because he wants to use us as his tools. And that's true, isn't it? God wants to use you. Think of that. You, you are an instrument in the Redeemer's hands, and he wants to use you, and so he's sharpening you through trials. So instead of, instead of coming, up, coming up with five steps to avoid trials, why don't you do this? Why don't you say, God, I believe this purpose, these purposes of yours. And even though I hate the trials, I can count it nothing but joy because you're the one who is in control. Amen? He's in control. And so instead of us sharing our trials so that, well, let me tell you what happened to me. That's nothing. Instead of that, why, why don't I say, you know, I know God's at work in me because I'm going through a trial I don't even understand, but I know his intention. I know what he's doing. He's refining my faith. He's working in me in a deep way. It's his purpose. I say that on the authority of Scripture, that God is working in your life to make you more like his son so that he can use you as an instrument in his hands. So let me pray for you. Our Father, how we thank you so much for your grace, for your goodness, for saving us. And we do thank you for the trials. I hate them, but I thank you for them. I thank you, Father, for every trial that you've allowed us to go through. I thank you, Father, you're able to refine us, refine our faith. You're able to bring us to maturity through this means that you have designed Thank you that you loved us, and therefore you've, you've developed a plan which includes times of testing. And Father, we want to be so confident in you that we go through them, believing you that you are doing a good work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.